Hey, this week on Jesus, Sex, and Politics, Nathan and I are not in the studio. Instead, we have special guest host, Tina Pavey. She's got a great interview with our current lieutenant governor and gubernatorial candidate, Suzanne Crouch. Tina's going to ask her all the questions about what it's like to be in politics, where she stands on important policy issues, and how she plans to move our state and nation forward. You're not going to want to miss it. Let's go. Welcome to the Jesus, Sex, and Politics podcast. I am not Micah or Nathan. I am Tina, and I am here to still talk about things culture doesn't want to talk about. That might scare you. That's right. We have kicked the gentleman out of the studio for today, and we have things to talk about. I have an amazing guest. I've been so excited about this. Um, She's been on the podcast before with Pastor Micah and myself. Um, but we decided there are some things we would like to talk about um, that really affect Hoosier women that women might have questions about, and actually, really everyone. Um, and when you hear her name, you'll know why, because she's for all Hoosiers. Um, so super excited to welcome our guest, our current lieutenant governor and candidate for governor of Indiana, Suzanne Crouch. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Tina. It's great to be here with you, just us women. I know. So we... Uh, chatted at the Indiana Right to Life banquet and we're kind of joking about it'd be fun to kick the men out and talk about women you know who's your women and things going on in Indiana and so here we are we successfully did it and women make it happen <laughs> that's right <laughs> yes so if you uh, are not a woman you are still welcome to listen because uh, Suzanne's policies the things she has on her platform definitely apply to all Hoosiers um, and you might have a daughter that you need to be thinking about with some of these things so Suzanne uh, we had you on the podcast I don't know a few months back uh, with Pastor Micah and myself and mm-hmm. kind of laid out uh, your background and all of that. But just as a refresher, can you kind of give us uh, just a reminder of who you are and, uh, you know, kind of where you're from, all of that? Oh, sure. Well, thank you, Tina. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to kind of share as a woman to woman, kind of those issues that are important to me, but really are important to all Hoosiers. Yes. And so, you know, it's interesting that I am the 52nd Lieutenant Governor of Indiana because when I was growing up in Evansville, I never dreamt my life's journey would bring me to this place because I didn't grow up in a political home. Did you? Not at all. It was anti. We were not allowed to talk about it. Well, I remember my parents (laughs) always voted, but I don't recall a single discussion growing up. But, you know, they raised me with the kind of values that I think ultimately led me to public service because they raised me to believe in God. Mm-hmm. to believe it. It takes, it takes hard work to get ahead. Yeah. They raised me to believe in equality and opportunity, not, not equality of outcome. But they also raised me with a strong sense of personal responsibility, but also to accept that I have a responsibility to help others who are less fortunate. And it's what led me to politics uh, eventually. And so, you know, throughout my Many years in public service, and I started out as a county auditor down in Vandenberg County, where Evansville is, and then I was a county commissioner, then I was a state representative, then I was auditor of state, and now service lieutenant governor running for governor. But throughout that period of time, I always tried to pattern my life after how I imagine Abraham Lincoln served. Mm -hmm. Because Lincoln said that government should do for people only what they cannot do better for themselves and no more. And so we have to fight the problems of too much and inefficient government. We have to deliver services efficiently to those that need them, but we should always measure our progress, not by the amount of assistance we give people, but by the number of people we get off of assistance and back on their own two feet. I love that. And it's, it's what I try to live every single day in public service to Hoosiers throughout this great state. Um, And so I'm honored to serve as lieutenant governor, running for governor. And I will tell you that it is because of the experience I have had at the local and state executive and legislative branches that I bring that experience to hopefully the governor of uh, the office of governor to be able to 
really make a difference for Hoosier families and, and for Hoosiers across our state, being able to deliver results for them, being able to stand up for our conservative values and to boldly lead Indiana into the future. Yes. Awesome. Wonderful. Um, and a woman of faith as well, which, you know, we want all of our leaders to uh, be led by God and prayer and all of that. So we appreciate that about you very much. Um, I would like to talk about some of the main things you have on your platform um, that especially there's one, like I just told you, like my husband's a big fan of this one and I hear it all the time um, uh, when you hear different things in media and radio and all of that. But um, talking about eliminating the state income tax. And we are going to get to some topics that are very uh, women specific, although they do concern men as well. Men should vote appropriately and know about these issues. But these, I do want to hit your top. Uh, I don't know if they're top, but the ones that I saw outlined on your platform. And so sure. the state tax is kind of a big one. That's a that's a project that seems like a little intimidating maybe. But so tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I think at least from a woman's perspective, most women are the ones that are keeping the checkbook, you know, for the family, not in all instances, but in many, many instances. And so they're very, very aware of what things cost today. And I travel the state. I mean, I have been all over this state. And I will tell you, Hoosiers are really suffering. They're being crushed by the high cost of living, by inflation, and by nomics. You know, today, Tina, it costs over $11,000 more than it did three years ago to be able to meet basic needs. I mean, we have seen, you know, people struggling and I was in Winnemac, Indiana, and an elderly gentleman came up to me and was talking to me at a ribbon cutting for an ag company. And he had tears streaming down his face and he said, how, how am I going to pay my rent and pay for my wife's prescriptions? I mean, we have Hoosiers that are struggling with these kinds of decisions every single day. Mm-hmm. And we have an opportunity to put thousands of dollars back into their pockets. We actually have a name for this. It's called Axe the Tax. You know, the average Hoosier, that's $2,000 back to them. If we eliminate the state income tax, that's $2,000 back to that average Hoosier every single year. You know, my opponents, big spending bureaucrats and special interest groups, they scream bloody murder and say it can't be done. But that money's not theirs. It's yours. Yeah. And you will always spend it more wisely than the government. And as governor, I'll make sure you get to keep it. And really, I'll tell you what, when my opponents are saying it can't be done, what they're really saying is government needs more of your money and you need less. You know, it's not going to be easy. But as former vice chair of the House Ways and Means Committee and as former auditor of state, I'm telling you, we can do it. It's not going to happen overnight. We have to phase it in. And we have to put in place triggers to protect against economic downturn. But when we do it, we do it by limiting government growth, by finding efficiencies in government, and then ending wasteful government spending. Okay, so I was going to ask, so what are those hows? Like, what are, what is the ripple effect of eliminating the state income tax? So you're saying it it comes from cutting what's what's not necessary limiting yeah but that's part of it okay we want to limit how much we allow government to grow so to give you an example my last year in the general assembly as a state representative was 2013 and we ended up that year passing a 30 billion dollar two-year budget for the state of indiana in 2023 we passed a 44.5 billion dollar budget for the state of indiana over the past decade we've increased government spending by 50 percent But from 21 budget session to the 23 budget session, we increased government spending by 19% just in one budget session alone. And so what I am saying is let's limit how much we allow government to grow. Mm -hmm. So maybe we limit it to the cost of inflation or maybe we limit it to how what a certain percentage of the expenditures that were spent the year before. But let's limit how much we allow government to grow. And then let's take those excess surpluses and revenues and put them towards eliminating the state income tax. And over a period of time, we can actually do it. And that then puts money into people's pockets. But I'll tell you what else it does, Tina. You know, the Tax Foundation, a think tank in Washington, D.C., 
says that Indiana is 10th in the country for our overall tax environment. So we're not bad. Mm -hmm. But seven of the states ahead of us have no sales or income tax. So Mm. when we eliminate the income tax, not only are we putting money back into Hoosiers' pockets, but now we make Indiana a no-income tax state where people will want to move here. You know, and they'll want to be living here because today, guess where they're moving to? Texas, Florida, Tennessee, no income tax states. Let's get them to move to Indiana and help address that workforce shortage issue that we have, along with putting money back into Hoosiers' pockets. We can do it. Yeah, that's great. So uh, one more question. We will do it when I'm governor. (laughs) One more question, um, and then we'll go to the next thing. But so you said it it will happen over time. So, Mm -hmm. and I know, you know, I don't know how much of it is science and how much of it is, well, you got to kind of play it out and see. But in your best guesstimate, like, what does that time frame look like to, like, what does the progression look like? I would, well, see, we're already in the process of reducing the, income tax. So in 2027, our state income tax would go from 3.1 to 2.9%. So I would love to have it completed by the end of my first term. But we will have to put triggers in place so that if for some reason the economy goes south, Mm -hmm. we pause that year in terms of eliminating and putting revenues towards it because we won't have any excess revenues. So we've got to put those triggers in place. But we will absolutely do it when I'm governor. And Hoosiers will not only benefit, but our economy will prosper. Yeah. Well, it's an exciting venture to think about. I, you know, what family says no to extra $2,000 in their pocket? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, okay. So um, uh, you also had on there um, investing in mental health. And I know when you t- we met last time here on the podcast, you mentioned that, um, and you want to make sure that we're making sure we're taking care of those who are struggling in that area to the best of our ability. So, what are your thoughts about that for the next? You know, should you win, what does that look like in your term? Sure. Well, you know, when COVID was going on and everyone was struggling, um, you know, it became obvious to me that this big change that everyone was going through was really affecting Hoosiers. And we've seen since COVID a 20% increase in anxiety and depression among our population, but, but Tina, a 60% increase in depression and anxiety among our young people. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a study I read recently that said in the past six months, one out of seven high school boys and one out of four high school girls have contemplated suicide. It's the third leading cause of death among young people. And there was just a report I read today where Marion County is one of 19, you know, uh, Marion City, Indianapolis is one of 19 cities that have the highest suicide rate among young people in the country. I mean, that's the future of Indiana. We're talking about young people here. We're talking about people whose lives matter. And so I ended up, as a result of COVID, co-founding the Indiana Mental Health Roundtable to be able to bring in the private sector to look at how we can then also help in terms of addressing mental illness and addiction. Mm -hmm. And and I've shared, I think, before on this story, uh, on this uh, podcast, that for me, it's extremely personal. Mm -hmm. I was raised by a mother who was very loving, but um, struggled with mental illness and depression her whole life. I remember being in my 30s. And she looked at me one day and said, you know, Suzanne, I've always loved you, but I've never liked you. But I understood at that time, while it was very hurtful, that it was because she struggled herself with mental illness and addiction. You know, we buried my older brother a little over a year ago. He was an alcoholic. He, He drank himself to death. And then my younger sister, Nancy, died in her early 20s by suicide. Uh, My husband and I, our only daughter, Courtney, is 16 years sober and bipolar. So when you have lived with Hoosiers that have struggled, you know that there's more that you have to do. You just have to. You've got to be able to help them. And it's why I did co-found the Indiana Mental Health Roundtable, why I'm committed to being doing what we can to empower everyone to help those that are struggling because they're our family, they're our friends, and they're our neighbors, you know? And the cost of untreated mental illness in this state is over $4 billion a year. So take aside the economy and the economics of it. We're talking about people in their lives. And so 
it's something that I just feel committed. I feel that God's called me to do this work and to try to shine a spotlight on those that are struggling, but then figure out how can we, how can we get services to them? You know, how can we help them so that they can have happy and meaningful lives? Yeah. First of all, I just want to say how sorry I am for everything that happened in your family. Um, that is, I, I understand it's, it hits a lot of us from compassion, but when you've lived it the way you have, that is so very personal. And so I just want to extend that to you that um, I'm just really sorry for everything that you've been through. I know that the Lord is good in Romans eight twenty eight, and he turns those things around and he'll use it for good. He doesn't waste our pain. No. And I think that's probably the, the call that you have is the Lord got you through those things and wants to use your pain to help others. So I, I couldn't agree more, Tina. And I, I, I believe with all my heart and soul that God puts us in places for reasons. Yeah. And God puts people in our lives for reasons. We're all called to serve him in whatever way we can. And this is my calling. Yeah. Amen. Well, I know I've sat across quite a few teenagers who are dealing with, not just with different things, but it's not uncommon to hear, I've had suicidal thoughts. I've thought about this. And, you know, you have to ask the next questions about how far has have those thoughts gone. And so I, I love your heart for that. And I support that for you. Um, the next thing you had on uh, your website that I noticed as part of your platform was supporting Indiana police. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we will... When I'm governor, we'll stand shoulder to shoulder with our police, and we're going to enforce our crime laws to the fullest. And we will send a message to That's the refreshing. criminals. That's <laughs> refreshing. Yeah, we'll send a message to the criminals and the fentanyl dealers that you might get into this country through our wide open southern borders, but when you come to Indiana, you're going to pay the price. I mean, Tina, can you imagine if ISIS came to right. this country and killed 100,000 Americans, including thousands of children, what our reaction would be? Right. I mean, it'd be pretty swift and it would be pretty decisive. And yet last year, fentanyl killed 100,000 Americans, including children. And what did Biden do? He sued the Republican governor of Texas for trying to keep illegals and keep those drug lords out of our country. You know, we cannot tolerate it anymore. We have to stand up and we have to stand beside those brave men and women who are out there protecting us and fighting this drug, you know, epidemic and crisis that we have before us. And so we have to look at how do we support them and how do we take care of the people that are taking care of us? Because a first responder, a fireman, a policeman is more likely to die by suicide than in the line of duty. Yeah. So I often believe that we have to figure out how to do a better job of supporting them. And part of it is lifting them up through prayer, but it is also about how do we glorify the work that they do for us and for God. Which is so, I mean, in recent history, we, and I say a general we, um, state of Indiana, our country in general, the a lot of the narrative you heard was, anti has been anti-police and you know it reminds me so my dad um was a vietnam veteran and so when you learn about that and you learn how those soldiers were received when they came home it's very similar to how our local state police have been treated um you know during 2020 with everything that happened and we even saw you know the the city of Indianapolis, how, how messy that got. And those police, um, you know, I, I remember watching it and just praying for them because it almost felt like they were out, like, is help coming? <laughs> like yeah. what's, what's going on? And a lot of the narrative you heard was just hateful. in general hateful. was so hateful, so hateful. And that's not completely gone. You know, that, that narrative is still out there. So I love, your heart to support them and to be vocal about that, that, you know, we need them. Um, so I love that part of your platform. All right. You ready to hit some stuff for women? 
I am. All right. Because I have some topics, some things that are going on or have gone on or coming up um, that you've had a voice in. And since we've kicked the men out, we can talk about this stuff as long as we want. We can make <laughs> coffee. It. We can do all the things. Um, but so specifically, I want to talk to you, of course, the probably the biggest hot button issue um, nationally and in Indiana, Indiana made uh, news recently over sort of a, um, a controversial case about abortion with that 10-year-old, you know, who was uh, reject, you know, her, her abortion here in Indiana. Anyway, that was very messy and very um, out there in the media. But you have a very specific stance on abortion, and I would love to hear you tell us about oh, it. Oh, absolutely. I am pro-life. And, you know, if I can back up a little bit, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about how they like Trump, how they don't like Trump, you know, they support Trump, they don't support Trump. But I will tell you this, I support Trump's appointment of those three conservative Supreme yes. Court justices, which reversed a 50-year record of allowing babies to be killed in this country by reversing the Roe v. Wade decision and giving states the right to make those kinds of, and enact those kinds of laws to protect the unborn in our respective states. And that is exactly what the Indiana General Assembly did. I, as Lieutenant Governor, don't, vote unless there is a tie vote Uh, and then I'm able to cast the tie-breaking vote and we did have a vote back in the uh, special session when Indiana took up the abortion law here in the state of Indiana and the the amendment was to require that um, those women that were expecting and wanting to get a um, have an abortion because of rape or incest would have an affidavit that would, you know, document that they had been raped or had been a victim of incest. The amendment was uh, allow it to be notarized. And so that was what I voted on. Uh, it came down 26-26 vote. I closed the machine. I cast a vote in favor of toughening our abortion laws and being able to protect the unborn. And um, Indiana went on to pass and become one of the toughest, you know, and most pro-life states in the, in the country. And so, yes. you know, it is amazing how everything is so cyclical and we can not allow the cycle to go back to what it was 50 years ago. I agree. And I was looking for, I had, uh, here we go, uh, at the Indiana Right to Life, they were talking about the number of abortions in Indiana and how the, what that has done to save how many babies, like the difference of the number of babies we are saving. So it used to be uh, 800 babies a year were aborted in the state of Indiana. And then the, um, I forget the, month that it was overturned so it was in august i believe so uh, okay so august and then the very next month as things were beginning to move it got down to 300 um and then 13 abortions in indiana the next month and then when we were at the dinner they were saying that uh the month of november i believe there were only 12 so you know now I'm a pro-lifer. I I would love to see zero, um, but you cannot. You know you have to give credit for the. I mean, look at how many babies have been saved in Indiana as a result. So thank you for your vote well, for that. In, in and, addition to that, Tina, Indiana's been a leader on the safe haven baby boxes. I mean, we yes. are truly a leader in the country. In fact, I was fortunate to be able to visit where they make the safe haven baby boxes oh, wow. you know, up in Northeast Indiana, being able to visit the company and the woman who started it. And uh, we, it's important that we protect the unborn, but it's also important we're there for the ones who are born and are vulnerable. Right. You know, our elderly, our disabled, those struggling with mental illness and addiction, mm-hmm. you know, we have to value all life. And, you know, Indiana is a state that does, and I'm proud of that. Yeah. 
Well, I think, you know, that's definitely, we hear a lot of voice, women's voices. And um, I, I've always kind of winced a little bit at the voice that says, well, it's women's health care and completely ignoring the other life that's involved in the decision to make an abortion, you know, to have an abortion and much less the, the father's right to have a say so in what happens to that child. But um, just that the child's rights are, have been so haphazardly just disregarded for quote unquote women's health care. So thank you for your vote on that and your stance on it. When Ronald Reagan, I think said, have you ever noticed, I'm kind of paraphrasing. He said, have you ever noticed that the, the people that are most pro-choice are the ones that are already born? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, um, so we were talking a little bit before we started recording, um, but I definitely want to hit education um, because that, you know, since uh, the shutdowns happened and and parents got, you know, inside into schools and what was going on and, you know, things have certainly not necessarily calmed down <laughs> or been settled in regards to education in Indiana. Um, so I just kind of want to just hear from you a little bit about parental rights, about how you think things are going and what kinds of things you would like to see um, going forward in the state of Indiana. Well, as governor, I'll make sure it's parents and only parents that control what's being taught to our children. You know, as you mentioned, you know, COVID, there were a lot of bad things that came from COVID. But one of the good things is, is that parents became engaged with their children's education because they were home with them and they were helping to teach them. And that was kind of awakening of parents all across the state of Indiana and quite honestly, across our country. And so that engagement now of parents understanding that they really have can, can have control over what is being taught to their children. But to do that, you've got to be involved in local school board races, in local school board meetings, engaging with your legislators, making sure laws are passed that protect the rights of parents. And as governor, as I said, I'll make sure it's parents that control what's being taught to our school or to our children. You know, it's, it's their responsibility. It's their God-given responsibility. Well, I I love that. And I think, you know, um, I know a lot of parents who've chosen alternative education, you know, co-ops are popular and homeschooling and Christian schools. There's a lot of other options besides public education. Um, I know, you know, one of the things that I think I was most concerned about, I remember one of our local school districts, I heard about a seventh grader who, uh, felt like they were a different gender than what they were quote unquote assigned at birth and wanted to change their name. And the school actually was encouraging teachers um, to call them by this other name and not involving the parent um, for the sake of the child's mental health. So can you just kind of address that scenario and I believe, Tina, that we passed, uh, the General Assembly passed a law that I I support that would require that parents are notified Mm -hmm. when a child goes to a teacher and asks that they be called by a different pronoun. And I think that that is absolutely what has to happen. You know, that the schools are not in charge of making those kinds of decisions regarding a child and a child's being, you know, that is the parent's decision. And that is what the parents should have influence. The parents should have the number one influence over their children. In fact, I know growing up, my parents were the single most important influence on my life, you know, growing up. Not not the schools, you know, not the media. It was my parents. And that's the way we should have it. That's the way we it should be. That encourages a strong family unit is when parents have control over what's being taught to their children. So if a child decides that they want to be treated a different way from what the family wants and the parents want, those parents need to know about it. They need to be a part and they need to be able to make that decision. But we also passed legislation, which I support, that allows, that does not allow for surgical changes to a child 
uh, you know, because they want to be a different sex. Mm-hmm. Those decisions can't be made till after a child is 18 years old because parents should not be able to make that decision to alter their ch- yes. children uh, and to change their bodies, you know, uh, until a child is of age to really weigh in on that themselves. So, in effect, stopping a form of child abuse. Mm-hmm. So, that's that's good. <laughs> Very happy to hear that. Um, yeah, so the other issue that comes up with schools is, of course, you know, curriculum, um, the CRT, social-emotional learning stuff, panorama surveys, all of that stuff really has kind of exploded. Um, I feel like a number of schools, their solution to it was to change what they call those things. Um, So just as a general question regarding, um, I guess, curriculum, so to speak, because there are some parents, you know, who will decide public school is the route they need to go, whether it may not be their first desire, but they'll make that decision anyway um, for various reasons. But tell me about like the state's role in curriculum and, and the, these, I mean, really it's about money, the panorama surveys and all of that. Um, so can you just talk to me a little bit about the Department of Education in the state of Indiana and what its role should and should not be in those things? Well, first of all, the number one person in charge should be the parent. Mm-hmm. I think then that what we have to have is that the Department of Education may set up guidelines, but those guidelines shouldn't be contrary to parents' rights. Uh, And so when they are, then as governor, I would step in and make sure that that isn't happening uh, because the parents need to be able to be weighing in and making those kinds of decisions on their children. But I can also um, express enough that, you know, it is so important that people are engaged and engaged at the local level, particularly with their school boards. Some of the most hotly contested races in the last election cycle were the school board races. Yeah. Because finally parents are engaged and understanding how those decisions affect their children. And so it doesn't always start from the top down. It also starts from the bottom up. Yes. And so people can't decide and I think we have had our blinders on in the past thinking that it's all coming from the top when in fact a lot of those decisions are coming right here in our communities and in our local schools so you know again I would engage parents to put forth the effort to be engaged at the local level with their local school boards but also with their legislators because those kinds of laws that are being passed are being passed at the state level, and it's important that parents are engaged. And I will tell you, as a former state representative, I was—I didn't get contacted on most bills for, by people in my district, but when I did, I paid attention. Mm-hmm. And so it's critical that parents have the right. As governor, I'll ensure the parents do control what's being taught to their children. But parents need to be also engaged in their rights and stand up for their rights, knowing that there's a governor that will support them, mm-hmm. but they also have to be engaged. Yeah. And so you can't be silent. Well, it's like we can't complain when we don't like what the government's doing, but then ask the government to fix necessarily. Like sometimes we do have to maybe kind of roll up our sleeves and make the decisions individually. And a lot of people are making the decision to pull their kids from government schools, Mm -hmm. that it's just not going to, you know, if that's not going to change or to fix, you know, some argue that, you know, the whole system, the teachers unions, all of that is so severely broken, it's irreparable. Um, But, you know, I don't know. I do think, you know, I appreciate your support of parents to make their decisions for their kids and to be vocal about it and to run for those school boards if necessary, to contact their representatives, to homeschool, whatever it is they need to do. Okay, I'm going to switch topics on us if that's okay. Sure. I don't have good transitions for the topic (laughs) changes. I'm just like, and next. Um, But Pastor Micah is probably way more smooth at transitions here than I am. But um, I want to talk to you about, because as Lieutenant Governor, of course, you served under Governor uh, Holcomb, um, the House Bill 1040, which was 
proposed to protect women's sports from men being able to compete with women, which Governor Holcomb then vetoed. Um, But then that was overturned by the assembly uh, to support women in sports. So can you tell me, because as Lieutenant Governor, you've got like second seat right there. Tell me about that and your role there and what that, how that shook and Oh, absolutely. You know, I was in Israel when the veto took place, and uh, I was not in favor of a veto. I supported that bill. Uh, And, you know, because I am a woman, because I am a mother, and because women have fought too long for the right, not just to vote, but for the right to compete with other women in our own sports. And so... It's not safe, nor is it fair for boys or men to compete in girls or in women's sports. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, I I was supportive of what the General Assembly did and did not support, you know, the governor's veto of it. And he knew it. Oh, okay. So you had that conversation and he knew where you stood. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. Um, Okay, so with that and your role under Governor Holcomb, um, I do want to ask too about the lockdowns that happened. Um, That was rough for Indiana. And um, I remember just as a mom, my son was in high school during that time. And you were waiting for those updates from Governor Holcomb uh, and Dr. Vox to come and waiting for everything just to kind of quit and go away. And it Get back to normal. And it took a minute. So talk to me about that time and what that was like. You know, we've learned a lot. Um, You know, I I think that I've learned a lot from everything that happened. And as I mentioned earlier, just the increase in anxiety and depression that has resulted. Yeah. You know, as as a result of people being locked down, of having mass mandates, you know, children going to school and not being able to see each other's faces or the teacher's faces. I mean, having those mandates, those lockdowns, those masks. I mean, mm-hmm. we now have learned that, you know, that wasn't necessarily the best thing in terms of the result. But, you know, moving forward, I will tell you this, that as governor, we will not, if we find ourselves in a similar situation, We will not have masks, we will not have mandates, and we will not have lockdowns. Wow. Because people have the right to make those decisions regarding their own health and their own families. Uh, And I respect that. You know, locking down and shutting down our churches where, you know, people actually depend upon their faith as a basic essential. I mean, their faith is as essential to them as eating or drinking, or sleeping. And so moving forward, we just aren't going to have that again. It's just, it's not going to happen Wow. when I'm governor. That's wonderful. And I I appreciate your bold stance on that, and I'm going to hold you to that. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to. (laughs) Um, That's that's wonderful to hear. And did you, and can I ask, and feel free to answer as you feel like, did you and the governor disagree, disagree vocally about that? Or how did, you know, we had a lot of private conversations. And, you know, I want to respect the privacy. But like any other two people, we don't don't and didn't agree on everything. Yeah. Okay. Um, So uh, Pastor Micah snuck a question in. I told him it was a girls' podcast only, but you know him. So, uh, but this is really good. He was asking just about state sovereignty and the role of the federal government um, regarding the state of Indiana. So, I, I think he was talking a little bit about that before we started recording. Like, you know, if uh, I think an example he gave was the FDA coming in to shut down. Um, a specific farm, you know, so he gave a specific story, but tell me about your stance as governor um, when it comes to the federal government coming in to override things in the state of Indiana. Well, first of all, when you talk about the hierarchy of who's in charge, God is in charge, families are in charge, 
the church then is in charge, and then the government is in charge. And what we have seen so oftentimes is that the federal government will come in and give money to the states, but there'll be a lot of strings attached ah, to there the it money. Is. Yes. And so I will tell you as governor, we will not be taking federal money if there are strings attached that run contrary to what we believe here in Indiana, and that is it is the family that really has the final say in terms, and the ultimate say in terms of what happens to them and to their loved ones. Uh, so, you know, I think we have to look and re-examine what is coming to us and then what are the strings that are attached to it. And also recognizing that there has to be a respect for what we do at the state level in terms of local government too. Mm-hmm. So when we take action at the low at the state level, we need to be sure that it's not an action that really puts local governments in a bad position either. Right. Yeah. And so I think with that, you know, are you willing to have a strong stance as governor that, you know, there are limits with the we're going to let the federal government do in the state of Indiana? I, well, the federal government isn't going to run the state of Indiana when I'm governor. You know, we will be in charge of ourselves and in charge of Indiana and in charge of Hoosiers. You know, when I'm governor, we will be a state that actually has our own rights, our own destiny, and we will determine our own destiny, understanding that it is families and it is God that moves us forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of the federal government, you know, we will stand up to the federal government. We'll stand up to them when they do things like let illegals come in through the border and bring fentanyl into our state. We'll stand up to them when it comes to China trying to purchase our land, you know, not yes. only our farmland, but our land around our military installations. And I will tell you that is something that I have been very engaged in and active as lieutenant governor, because as lieutenant governor, I serve as secretary of agriculture. So my state department of agriculture right now is doing an assessment of all the lost farmland from 2010 through 2022. We're also looking at what's the economic impact of that lost farmland. And then I've directed them that they need to determine who's bought that farmland and are they companies or corporations with ties to unfriendly countries like China because we need to know who is purchasing our farmland. Yes. But I'll also tell you, Tina, that as lieutenant governor in the last budget session, I was able to get $1.9 million in the budget to be able to buy land that butts up to Crane Naval Warfare Center mm-hmm. that was going on the market to be able to purchase that land and put it in a trust to be able to be overseen by the Department of Natural Resources so that we can protect our secrets that are taking place in our military installations and we don't have unfriendly countries like China and others buying up that land and then spying on us. Which I have to say, you know, as a, a governor, as a leader in government, like that means you get your eyes off dollars, you know, to protect Hoosiers and to protect our country. So I that... I'm really grateful for your eyes on that and to really protect us and protect our secrets from China. Um, yeah, because China's not our friend. <laughs> no, no, I, they're not on that list. And they're stealing our <laughs> land and they're, and they're stealing our children's minds. Yes. So they can buy our crops, but they ain't going to buy our farmland. Right. Okay, that's good. All right. Um, I have two... Well, I mean, we could talk forever. I just, I love talking with you. Every time we've had a conversation, I just find you very easy to talk to. And I appreciate your, I feel like you're very honest and um, I just love what you have to say. So thank you again for being here. I have a couple more things. Um, one we uh, is a question that's just kind of been on my mind and it's more of an education. Like, can you explain to me, educate me on the role of the governor. So specifically, I look at the city of Indianapolis, um, which of course has a you know has a mayor and its own uh, thing with uh, Hawkset there. But um, 
it is our nation, our state, not our nation, it's our state's capital. Um, and some of the decline that's happened in the city of Indianapolis. And I truly don't know the answer to this question. So forgive me, but what kind of extension does the role of governor have in that kind of that situation? Um, I really don't know what their purview is or, yeah. I, I You know, a governor as governor, I will take the steps to form the partnerships with the city of Indianapolis. I think that is what we have to do. It's the mayor's responsibility to make sure the city of Indianapolis is safe. It's thriving. You know, it's a place where people want to come to. But if that is lacking, then the state should be able to partner and look at how we can come alongside and help make those things happen because we want Hoosiers to feel safe regardless of their zip code. You know, we want people coming to Indiana to feel safe regardless of where they're at. I'm from Evansville, and so I know what it's like to be ignored by the Indianapolis establishment. Mm. But I will also tell you that I understand how important our capital city is to the state of Indiana. And so we will take steps when I'm governor, we'll take the steps that we need to, to be able to partner and to come in when the city is lacking and be able to look at how we can partner and help it become all it can be. Yeah. Because to your point, when you were talking earlier about um, eliminating the, the income tax, the draw that that would have for people to come to Indiana, to make Indiana their home. But you know, the, uh, the main attraction, so to speak, like, you know, your city, your capital city, um, you've got, you know, various problems going on. It, it's not safe right now to to walk around, you know, as it used to be. And so I do think, you know, that affects people's decisions to move here. Um, so, you know, Hamilton County is sort of grabbing a hold of some of that by building some of the sports complexes and things like that, you know, making some attractions, but the capital city, it just kind of breaks my heart a little bit. And so do you think, um, I never met Joe Hogsett. I probably never will. I don't have that. I'm not in politics or anything like that, but do you feel like you can work with him? You know, I, I, I make it my mission to work with everyone, Mm -hmm. you know, because campaigns are about politics. But once the campaign's over, it's about, you know, really working together across the aisle, you know, everyone trying to come together to try to benefit the people that we're serving. Uh, Because at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's about Hoosiers. It's about them feeling safe in their communities, about them having enough money, enough economic freedom to be able to live the lives they want to live and to be able to have the freedom to choose the path they want to choose, you know, without interference from government. And so, you know, it's truly at the end of the day about collaborating, figuring out how ways to work together so that all Hoosiers are safe and prosperous. That sounds beautiful. (laughs) It sounds great. And I'm on board and I will pray for all of those things. I just, you know, some of the leadership in the city seems to have different ideas about life in general, different values and morals. And um, so I just, you know, I would love to see, you know, I think about uh, Chicago. I'm from Northwest Indiana. I grew up in Valpo. So our field trips were always to Chicago. Right. Uh, Walk in the Magnificent Mile, looking at the windows at Christmas time. And it was the place to go. Um, And now, you know, my, I have family that uh, still is in Northwest Indiana and you know, you're just not going to go there in the same way that right. you used to. And so I would love to see Indianapolis just be that beacon, you know, this great place where you can go and look at art. And, and again, we need Republican leadership, conservative leadership. And if we don't have it at the city level, then we need it at the state level to yeah. be able to come in and look at how we can make that happen. That's awesome. Okay. All right. My last question for you then. So you've been Lieutenant Governor for how many years? Seven eight, years. Seven years. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was going to say eights, but there's, you're in the eighth one. Um, so eight years in this role uh, underneath Governor Holcomb, what are some of your takeaways about leadership, about how those two roles function and how you would uh, view and work with your Lieutenant Governor 
in that position? Well, I think having been a lieutenant governor, I understand kind of the the challenges. Yeah. I understand also that um, it's extremely important for the governor and lieutenant governor to communicate. Uh, I would want a lieutenant governor who was a part of the policy of the state of Indiana. I would want a lieutenant governor who uh, we would not agree on everything, but can bring their own perspective to the challenge, to the issue, so that we can end up with the best solution for Hoosiers. And so having been a lieutenant governor gives me insight into what that office does, because as lieutenant governor, you're secretary of agriculture, you head up housing, you know, affordable and workforce housing. You head up the Office of Community and Rural Affairs. And you also head up the Destination Development Corporation, which encompasses tourism. And so that's unusual because in most states, the lieutenant governor just acts if the governor's incapacitated. But in Indiana, it's about the constitutional duty of being president of the Senate. So you have to have a lieutenant governor who can run the Senate but then can run those four agencies. So I would look for a true partner, not in name only, Mm, but a true working partner. Good. Well, I have no doubt that they'd be able to work with you. And um, so we could keep going, but wow, there's been so much. And I really appreciate because, you know, I'm, again, you know, not involved in politics. I'm just a voter. And, you know, I'm a mom, grandma, pastor, all woman, all the things. Um, and so I really loved getting down to sit down with you and just talk through your platform and talk some of these things. Like, I don't know everything. Um, but boy, you know, like women in sports and abortion, all of those things are important to me as a Hoosier woman. So I really just want to thank you for, uh, coming with me, helping me kick Micah out, you know, it was a bit of a struggle, <laughs> but we got him out. <laughs> it's girl power. That's right. Pastor Nathan, he hasn't been around, so I don't think he even knows we took over. But um, um, I just want to thank you so much for sitting down with me to talk about these things. I love so much about what you're doing. Um, I like your platform a lot, and I just, I like you as a person. Uh, really appreciated getting to know you. Well, thank you, Tina. I feel the same way, and and um, God will keep us safe. That's right. Amen. All right. Well, with that, we're going to call this one a wrap. So this has been the Jesus, Sex, and Politics podcast without Micah or Nathan, where we talk about the things culture doesn't want to talk about that will scare you. This has been Tina Pavey with my awesome guest, the one and only Suzanne Crouch. Catch us next time on Jesus, Sex, and Politics.